Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Cyril O, Miko L, and Andy S. Sylvain Bowett is on the show today. Sylvain is Chief Investment Officer of Eight Stone Aklaner, a Singapore-based wealth management firm focused on fixed income and multi-asset strategies. You can learn more about the firm on their website, eightstone-aklaner.com. Sylvain, thanks for coming on and welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on. Real pleasure to uh, finally speak with you. Absolutely. Likewise. How's things going in Singapore these days? Well, I guess uh, things are, are a bit tough given the uh, macro environment and uh, the spat between China and, uh, and the U.S., but I guess uh, it's still pretty, uh, pretty good compared to uh, other places. Can you speak to that for a moment? You know, we've got some of the issues uh, in Hong Kong going on. How do you feel with Singapore? And are you of the opinion that Singapore is probably at least in the top two jurisdictions in the world now for uh, a good wealth capital base and a safe, good jurisdiction for capital and, and good regulation? What's your thoughts on Singapore at this point? Sure. Well, I can tell you that, uh, I mean, um, we came here uh, nine years ago uh, to set up the company. When we came to Asia, we, we were actively looking into Hong Kong as well and Singapore. And uh, back then, we really decided to go for Singapore because we thought that uh, uh, Hong Kong was uh, going uh, back to China uh, one way or another. And um, we wanted to be like um, in a place like Switzerland, where it's really independent and uh, there's no, not much outside influence on, on, on the place. So we think uh, Singapore uh, is the big winner here from the, what's happening in Hong Kong. We've seen a massive outflow from Hong Kong to, to Singapore. And uh, I think also the Singaporean government have uh, communicated quite well on the, on the issue. And uh, they are very cognizant to the fact that uh, they have to, to really take into account uh, people's opinion and, uh, and not try to enforce uh, too much on the people and really um, take into account what's, what's happening and how uh, um, people are evolving uh, nowadays. Very well. I appreciate you sharing the, your thoughts on it, given that you're there on the ground. Well, Sylvain, can you give us an overview of the fund, your experience and background, why you come to focus with this fund on fixed income and multi-asset strategies? I've been on the, uh, in the asset management industry for about uh, 20 years, starting my career in, in, in Paris at BNP Paribas, managing a portfolio for iNetwork clients. Uh, then I moved to uh, Monaco with BNP. And then I uh, was back in 2007, and then I decided to um, to go uh, more on the independent route, and um, I joined the uh, Geneva-based uh, independent asset manager. I spent two years in Geneva, and then uh, one of the partners asked me to, uh, if I was open to open a company with him in uh, in, in in Asia and Singapore, and uh, so I uh, I came I ended up in Singapore nine years ago, and uh, I've been acting as the uh, CIO of. Uh, and executive director of the company. Uh, so we recently merged uh, with um, another asset manager called Eightstone. Uh, that's why the name is now uh, Eightstone uh, Oklana. 
And um, happy to say to say that uh, we are running a 1.5 billion dollar in assets. And mostly what we do is um, fixed income for probably uh, nearly half of the book. Uh, fixed income strategy, so we're really active, really looking at uh, a Asia, US dollar bonds. And uh, on the other side, we do a multi-asset strategy program, where it's more like a top-down uh, macro asset allocation, where we try to, uh, to generate um, steady return with a relatively low volatility. So in this multi-asset strategy program that we have, a, um, we look at uh, thematics for investments, uh, big trends, uh, and um, we also have a pocket that we call a, a tactical opportunity where we, um, we are ready to uh, reanalyze um, a contrarian idea or an idea that can have a, an outstanding risk-reward ratio uh, with a one to two year uh, horizon. And um, in this pocket at the moment, we have a, um, uh, a fund, uh, if you will, a sub fund uh, focusing on uh, uranium mines. I want to ask you before we talk uh, more about uranium, can you speak to the performance of the fund, the key management folks at the fund, and then also are you guys looking at potential clients and what might those terms look like for potential clients? For the the, the fixed income program, we have um, a team running uh, running the show here. Uh, it's a former portfolio manager from a hedge fund uh, called Camunti Capital, so it's uh, He's been spending his time on uh, fixing income arbitrage and uh, convertible bonds, uh, where we think there's a lot of value to add. So for the fixed income, we we are very happy this year. Uh, I mean, given the, the the short maturity that we have in the book, we are up 10% uh, mid-December. Uh, last year, we were down 1.5%. So we think we, we did a good job last year to protect uh, capital for our investors. And um, on the... Um, on the on the fee, or, or we are very transparent. We uh, we just charge a, a, a management fee, uh, which is between um, 0.7 to 1%, depending on the assets of uh, and the management. And for the multi-asset strategy, uh, it's more a globally diversified portfolio, um, where we 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 have uh, various assets like equity bonds. Uh, we have some commodities, and we have some uh, private equity as well. So. For this strategy, it's been, a, it's been a very good year as well. Uh, I mean, this year is quite uh, quite an easy year. Everything is up. So uh, we we up also uh, in US dollar term about uh, 10% with the volatility of around 3.5%. Uh, and for the potential clients, uh, what size of client are you looking for? What's your minimum? So within the within the business, we have two, um, two different uh, um, line uh, or channel if you want uh, we have a uh, the wealth management where the client comes in and uh, sign a mandate and we manage uh, we manage his, his account uh, that is custody at the, at, the, at the bank of his choice so for this side of the business the minimum requirement we have um, by, by regulation is, uh, is about two million but uh, we're really looking at a bigger portfolio in about five million us or onwards but uh, we have another side of the business, which is the fund management business. So what we try to do in the fund management business is to replicate what we do for our biggest clients into a, a fund format. And for that, we have a, a UCITS uh, Luxembourg-based platform where uh, anybody can, uh, can invest. Those funds are registered in Europe and in Singapore uh, as well. So um, anybody can, can, can invest a, a, any amount of money they, uh, they want into those funds. 
Can you go into just a little bit more detail as far as, uh, we'll get to uranium in a moment, but can you speak to what areas in fixed income are you looking at? Um, is there any any potential ideas that uh, to give us an example on that side? And then over on the multi-asset side, are there some other areas of the market that you're looking at? And can you maybe share with us uh, some of the ideas that you're looking at there? Sure. So fixed income, um, we've been doing that for the last nine years. We um, we uh, foc we, fo we really focus on, on Asia, Asia credits or investment grade and high yields. So the idea behind the strategy is to have a, uh, a, a portfolio construction process that is really uh, robust to any kind of market scenario. Uh, and for that, what we want to do is to blend uh, investment grade, so long-end bond, with the short-term IE credits. So for the what we do by blending this, um, what happened by blending those two components of the market is that you reduce the volatility and you reduce a uh, the drawdown of the portfolio. So in a way, when you do when you when you program the portfolio this way, you don't need to have so much of a of a, of a hedge. Um, on top of the portfolio, and so you, you reduce the cost of, uh, of hedging. Now, what we're looking at at the moment is um, we're really looking to, uh, to some, uh, uh, I would say, uh, double B, single B bonds, where we had some, um, uh, some spread widening uh, for the last uh, few months. We tried to avoid uh, some of the, uh, the mainland Chinese um, uh, issue in, in US dollar. I don't know if you saw, but the last uh, few weeks you had a, a lot of default in China, even for top names like the Beijing University, Peking University that uh, just defaulted on, the, on their bonds. So we try to avoid what we don't understand. We try to stick with repeat issuer that we know very well. We speak to companies um, uh, on, on, on a daily basis and we try to have a uh, High conviction portfolio around 50 to 70 names where we understand the business and uh, we are very confident that uh, we're going to get repaid. Funny enough, uh, we found a lot of uh, distress opportunity in Europe despite the quantitative uh, easing and the bond buying program by the ECB. You have a part of the market that has been completely left out, which is the uh, uh, high yield. Um, uh, Bond market and especially some some sub segment of the high bond market in Europe, and so we think that um, on on this segment there's a lot of uh, value to add if you really do the credit work and uh, speak to the company and really understand what's happening on the ground. Okay, and can you speak a little bit more about that as far as you guys are looking at distressed stuff when you when you look at some of these distressed high yield bonds? Basically, you don't want any bankruptcy risk. Where are you focused when you guys look at the balance sheet of these companies? What is the focus and how do you come to your determination sure. to pull the trigger on, on these that are obviously trading at a discount? So what we're looking at in fixed income, and I mean, what we want in fixed income is to have a, um, a business that has some assets where we have some uh, um, ability to enforce our credit rights if something happened, first of all. And we, right. what we want also is to know, is to understand the management strategy, why the company is distressed, why it's trading at this, uh, this spread level. And uh, when I say distressed, I'm not looking at uh, bond trading at 20 or 30 cents on the dollar, but more bond trading in the 70s. Like, you know, it's, I think it's a fertile ground to look at uh, um, bond trading below 80 cents to 70 cents on the dollar, where you had an event uh, on, on, the, on the bond, the market has... Uh, 
has puked and then you really want to understand if the market has puked just because uh, of a technical event or is, is really something happening in, at the company level. So we spend a lot of time, a lot of man hour uh, talking to the company, understanding the business. And if we like um, what we hear from the management, if we like uh, the jurisdiction as well, um, then, uh, then we will invest. And on the multi-asset strategy side, what's an area that you guys are looking at that has sparked your interest? At the moment, we've scaled back our our equity risk uh, because we're going to your end and we wanted to protect the performance for our clients. But um, at the moment, we we are looking at um, several thematics. One that we like is the um, Asian consumer uh, thematics. Uh, we're also looking at uh, adding a lot of ESG component to our investment uh, process. Um, and... Uh, one of the area that uh, that we continue to like as well is some uh, um, opportunity in uh, in in Asia, especially China, where we think that uh, the market has lagged, and especially on the on on the tech side. What we look uh, for in equity is completely different from what we look for into the fixed income. So in right. equity, we really position toward uh, business light or asset light business business businesses right so asset light businesses means that we we don't want to have too much of uh, industrial assets we prefer to have high margin high growth business uh, and uh, we don't really care if the price to book is very high of those companies but uh, we, we we want to have a lot of margin a lot of cash flow generation uh, now on the fixed income side is the opposite we're looking for uh, businesses that have a lot of assets so industrial businesses where if something happened on the credit side, we can we can uh, we can take uh, we can we, we can take possession of the assets and 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 eventually resell the assets. Sylvain, can you speak to does the firm have an opinion or a position related to gold as a part of the portfolio? What's your outlook on gold if you have one, and does gold have a place uh, for you guys? Sure, I mean it does. Um, on our multi-asset strategy program, the um, the core allocation to gold is 10%. And at the moment, we are neutral. We are 10% long gold. Uh, and we've been uh, increasing our position in the first quarter of this year because uh, when we saw that the, um, the Fed was going into a full easing mode again, we thought that rates were coming down and... Uh, we wanted to uh, to be at a full allocation on gold. So at the moment, we have no plan to change that uh, long position in gold. We think gold is a very good diversifier for the rest of the portfolio. Uh, and on average, we'll, we'll go as low as 5% if we don't like gold in the cost allocation and uh, maybe 15% if we really, really like it. But at the moment we are neutral in gold, we are 10%. Okay, and and the way you're expressing that, uh, are you guys uh, doing something with physical gold? Um, are you looking at the equities? Are you just doing a trust, or what are you doing there as far as? No, we we uh, for the core asset allocation, we're only looking at physical gold. Okay, very well. And yeah, we think the mining. I mean, mining is something different. Um, it's not uh, as much as a good diversifier for our asset allocation. So we uh, we really prefer to look at uh, physical and gold mine. We can do it, but it would fall into the tactical uh, uh, opportunity. Well, I understand you have been um, working on a uranium outlook that you are going to send out at some point here shortly. 
Can we go ahead and talk about that? What are you uh, seeing in the uranium market and what can we expect coming out of your outlook that you're putting together? Sure. I mean, we've just uh, uh, finished to write the 2020 outlook yesterday. So uh, I, I think I'll send it to you after the, after the, the talk today. Uh, what, what we have been looking at in uranium is like uh, last year uh, in 2018, uh, we really saw some uh, pretty powerful catalyst on uranium uh, where you had um, major positive events. Uh, starting in January, you had the uh, energy fuel and UR energy, as you can remember, that filed a petition with the US Department of Commerce. Then you had uh, uh, Cameco that uh, took uh, MacArthur River and uh, Key Lake under care and maintenance. And then you had um, the listing of Yellow Cake in July. Then you had the uh, announcement by Paladin that they were putting their, their Langer Iric mine under care and maintenance as well. Then you had the listing of Kazakhstan uh, Cameco. And then you had a Rio Tinto announcing that they were going to sell uh, their Rossing uh, mine to the Chinese. So last year for us was really a year where we we said uh, look the markets can really move uh, they are cutting production primary production we think uh, secondary supply are shrinking and we think the the, the utilities could come back to the market uh, for in for the long-term contract so we set it up a fund uh back in october uh last year to have a um, exposure to uranium in our uh, asset allocation and uh Frankly, 2019 uh, has not been the year we were expecting. Um, I mean, the price uranium is uh, is down nine percent uh, year to date, um, and uh, it's been a pretty bad year for uranium miners. Um, even looking at uh, big names like Cameco, uh, down twenty percent, or even the U.S. Uh, uh, miners I just mentioned they are down uh, twenty-five to thirty percent. But uh, what we what we really think. Um, is that um, to analyze and to, to understand that the uranium market, you need to analyze at least four, four major components where we, we see that uh, have an impact on the price trajectory. So I would say primary supply and secondary supply, uh, it's really important, as well as determining the uh, active purchasing uh, potential from the utilities. And from that, we analyze the consumption requirement and inventory variation. So from what we're seeing in the market today, uh, we think the market is uh, already uh, in primary deficit, that uh, secondary supply could shrink a little bit next year, and that um, active purchasing from utility should uh, restart, uh, in, hopefully in 2020, but at the latest uh, in 2021, and that the price uh, of uranium should uh, Converge toward what we think is the marginal cost of production. Actually, uh, at the moment, about uh, 40, 45 dollars a pound. So nearly a double from where we are today. The fund, when you set that up, Sylvain, what did you guys end up doing as far as the size of the fund specifically dedicated to uranium? Can you speak to how much you guys have available for uranium? When we decided to set up the fund, um, was we had a conviction on the macro side, um, and uh, we. Uh, but we knew that we had no uh, capacity to reanalyze uh, the miners. So we teamed up with uh, Alexander Molina, which is a former CEO of Paladin. Uh, and uh, he became, uh, he became a special advisor to the fund. Uh, so he's advising us on what to buy, what not to buy, what's the best asset, best, manage, best management. Now, in terms of the size, I think it's a very good question. Um, the liquidity in the market, um, 
except for Cameco is really, really bad. I mean, those companies uh, trade a few shares a day. It's very hard to, uh, uh, to trade around those shares without impacting the market. So what we did to, to, to be comfortable is that we capped the, um, we capped the, uh, the fund at uh, 15 million US, which is very small for us. But uh, we think that if we want to do a good job and be able to, uh, to do some trading, we, we think the maximum uh, will be 20 million. So we want to be uh, at 50 million to feel comfortable that uh, we can ensure liquidity in our fund if, uh, if need be. Yes, it's very complicated to, uh, to navigate with large sums. You have to certainly be uh, patient with how you go about doing that. Now, can you speak a little bit, Sylvain, to how you guys are positioning? Like, what are you guys looking at as far as the stage of business um, in the uranium mining sector? Are you looking at the explorers, developers, producers, all of the above? How many positions do you think you guys would be looking to have in the fund in terms of a total count of companies? And then how are you guys allocating that capital? Are we, are we talking uh, 10% position sizes? Uh, how's, how's that all kind of line up for you guys on your view of it? So, you know, uh, uranium uh, um, contention is that uh, we might be close to a tipping point for the uranium markets, but um, we also know that we could be wrong probably by a year or two. Uh, given the, the the level of inventory that we have in the market and uh, the, the the secondary supply that is very hard to estimate, so we didn't want to go all in uh, next year. So we built the portfolio around uh, uh, defensive positions, and defensive position means that you need to uh, to own producers uh, more than uh, junior miners, and so the the majority of the, of the portfolio is positioned toward like um, big producers. Uh, like uh, Kazatom Prom, for example, and also some uh, closed-end ETF like uh, Yellow Cake or, or uh, UPC in Canada, where we think that uh, uh, the, the volatility will stay contained uh, because we don't think the price of uranium will uh, drop below 25, uh, but we could stay depressed to, to this kind of level for another year or two. So we didn't want to go all in, so we have some... Uh, uh, we have some uh, junior uh, miner in the portfolio because we want to have to retain some optionality in the portfolio. If, in case we write and the price starts to move uh, quickly, we want to have some uh, some stock that can that can return five to ten times uh, their, their money very quickly. But uh, uh, at the moment, we are defensively positioned toward the uh, producer, and we avoid uh, we definitely avoid. Um, most of the junior mines and uh, especially uh, mines that have a uh, requirement for capital raise in the next uh, six to 12 months. We have about, uh, depending on the, the time, we have about 10 to, 15, 10 to 15 positions in the portfolio, but the weight that we have uh, vary greatly from, uh, we can have 1% position in a, in a junior mine to a 15% position in a producer. And can you also speak to your guys' cash? I, obviously, you know, you mentioned there that you, you're not fully allocated, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that's been a smart move uh, for a lot of folks to not be fully allocated. We've tried to do that as well. At this point in time, uh, Sylvain, where would you guys say you guys stand as far as cash uh, available in the fund? Are you guys sitting at 50% or, or less than that? Where are you guys at? The fund is 95% uh, invested, but uh, the uh, total allocation that we could, um, that could put into the fund, probably 20 to 25 million if the market starts to move and the liquidity starts to improve. So at the moment, we have uh, about 15 million, so we, we could uh, potentially uh, 
increase uh, the portfolio size by you know 30 to 50 percent but, but but before that we need to see the price uh move a little bit and, and to have confidence that uh that uh, secondary supply shrinking and that uh inventory level have stabilized okay and can you speak to the producer side for a moment let's just maybe use cameco and Prom as the two primaries What's your guys' view? I know Alex has a, a interesting view that's not necessarily mainstream. What's your guys' view on your favorite big producer? One of our biggest uh, call at the beginning of the year was to be uh, out of Cameco and long Caseton Prom. I mean, we really like uh, management of Cameco. They're doing a great job. The problem on the side, they have great assets. The problem is um, because they've suspended their, their MacArthur uh, mine, they are now, in a way, they are short uranium. Right, they need to buy in the spot market. So if if you if you believe that the spot market can rally uh, to uh, 40, 45 very quickly, then they'll be forced to uh, to buy at a very high price. At the same time, they cannot restart right away. MacArthur probably take uh, at least a year to restart, restart MacArthur. So in that context, we we prefer uh, to stick with Cameco uh, with Kadatom from which is a um, I mean the lowest the lowest cost producer and that benefit also with a uh, Ongoing devaluation of their of their currency, the tangy. And in terms of relative value, I think this uh, this call had played uh, very well. I mean, Casatom uh, Prom is really flat. So I mean, slightly up since IPO last uh, last November, and Cameco uh, is down uh, is down more than 25 percent. Right, and I think a one-year restart of MacArthur River is uh, is awful ambitious in my view. I think it'll take. Longer than that, I think they'd be very lucky if they even got close to a year. Always take the bare case. So our sure. view for for, rest, for restarting uh, MacArthur is more 18 months. But even in the best case where something happened and they, they are able to restart in a year, they could face uh, uh, a problem in the market if, because they need to buy uh, a huge amount uh, of, uh, of pound in the market to deliver an extra. Right. And I can understand why you would take that approach. It makes sense. I mean, if you're wrong, it's even better for you anyway. So that's <laughs> that's a good yeah. thing. Well, can you speak to just a little bit more about your guys' strategy? Um, are you guys looking at the U.S. at all for exposure to uranium? Are you looking in places like Australia? Are you looking in Africa? Can you kind of speak to other places and your guys' other thoughts and feelings about some of these other opportunities besides the big producers? So we have a, a big overweight uh, in the U.S. I think the situation in the U.S. Uh, is uh, ripe for a big, uh, a big performance from the uh, the U.S. producers like um, UR Energy and uh, Energy Fuel, and to some extent to uh, Peninsula as well, uh, company that we own in the portfolio. Uh, I think those guys are quite right to point out that that, that there's a a, 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 a national security problem in the in, in the um, in the uh, mining space in uranium in the U.S. and we think that uh, even if the um, uh, the White House has delayed and extended by about six months the uh, decision um, on 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 the on the, the probe 232, I think uh, it's very likely that uh, we'll see some positive announcement uh, in the next few uh, few weeks or few months because. Look, at, at the moment, I think it'll be very easy for for the U.S. Uh, for the White House to uh, to come up with a solution where um, uh, you have the uh, the U.S. utilities or the, the Department of Defense to buy 
probably uh, 4,000 ton a year uh, at about $50 a pound um, in the US. So I think even if they buy uh, 4,000 4, ton a year, uh, that's translated immediately into 500 million of sales uh, per year. And if you look at the total, total combined market cap of US producers, and, and here I'm talking about producer people that, that, that produce already, and if you look at energy fuel, you uh, are energy and peninsula, they, the market cap is about 300 million. So I think even a small positive announcement in the US can really have a big effect on, the, on, on those guys. They could easily double from here. Yeah, Australia, I mean, we, uh, we do like Australia. Uh, it's a very good jurisdiction, very good assets. So we own a couple of names uh, in Australia and we, 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 we like uh, names that are fully permitted and ready to export. Uh, company and uh, where the management is good and when there's no uh, uh, capital raise in sight. Africa would be, um, I mean, the problem with Africa and uh, at the moment is that um, it's it's relatively high cost. Uh, some of the names um, are very far away from a restart. Even if you take uh, Paladin, like um, which uh, is under care and maintenance in, in Namibia. Um, we think that they require a price of at least 55 to restart. So because we have not a great conviction that the uranium price will turn right away uh, and that you'll see a big wave of new long-term contracts, we prefer to uh, underweight, uh, underweight those guys. And then some of the producing assets in Africa are not uh, available to invest. Like uh, you look at the asset mine, for example, that belongs to the Chinese, uh, it's not it's not possible to invest. Um, so, yeah, we do like we we do look at a company in 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 Africa like the Govix, uh, Bannerman, um, Paladin, but uh, it's a small position in our portfolio right now. As we progress here in 2020, will you guys be looking to participate, uh, or have you participated? What's what's the entry strategy in particular to some of these new names? or where you guys want to grow your position? Are you guys doing private placements? Are you buying in the open market? Are you kind of doing a mix of everything? How do you guys approach that? For, for, for regulation purposes, uh, we tend not to participate in, uh, in uh, private placements or uh, pre-IPO. So we tend to only buy in the spot market. I mean, we, where we can have a, a proper closing price. Uh, it's just in terms of reporting to the clients, I think for us, it's a, it's a better way to do things. But uh, at the moment, we are not looking to uh, to invest into uh, into new names or new position. We are really happy with uh, with the portfolio we have, and uh, we think that uh, it's very well positioned to uh, um, to start to make some uh, some money next year. We are, we are also pleased to see that we've uh, even if the fund is down, we've outperformed most of the uh, of the industry this year because we were very defensive. So we want to keep this. Uh, this defensive portfolio at the moment and not uh, go really all in into uh, into new names or, or, or non-producers where there's always the risk that they raise capital and then you get diluted and the stock drops by uh, 20 to uh, 50%. I mean, it's what happened to Paladin this year. If you look at Paladin this year, I mean, the stock is down 50%. Uh, if you have only a 5% position, you'll be down only 25 already on, on, on that position. So it's not a risk we are willing to take. When you meet up and you talk with Alex and you guys have your meetings about the sector, can you speak to how Alex is with regards to his conviction for seeing 
the uranium price move up to 40 or $50 a pound. Can you, can you speak to the level of excitement and conviction that Alex has for this particular special situation in uranium? The outcome is highly probable in favor of, of what we've done to position ourselves. Can you kind of speak to what Alex would, would have to say, or can you maybe speak to your experience in the meetings with him? Sure. Uh, I mean, I speak uh, nearly uh, on a daily basis with Alex, so uh, I, I start to, uh, to understand uh, quite well his, uh, his view. I think it's better if you speak to him directly, but what I can, uh, I can say is that uh, we've uh, helped us uh, to work extensively on, the, on our model uh, for uranium demand consumption. Uh, and, from what, uh, and from our discussion, I mean, uh, it really believes that uh, we should see a normalization of the uranium price at least to the four to the low 40 to 45 the next uh, the next two years um, also it has uh, I mean is the he knows inside out the industry especially at, at the mine level uh, so the level of insight he has uh, on management and the quality of assets unbelievable so I think uh, on that part he has added a lot of value to the fund um, his, his main contention is that the price should go back to 40-45, as, uh, as I said. But uh, when, when he speak, uh, I mean, he also mentioned uh, several times that uh, the uranium market is ripe for disruption uh, because of, we have a primary supply deficit. So if you have a disruption at the mine, if you have a geopolitical disruption, uh, you, the price could really spike maybe to uh, 50 to $70 uh, a pound very quickly, a bit like we saw in 2010 or 2000. Uh, 2014, where the price uh, quickly moved uh, uh, between 80% in 2010 to uh, 50% in 2014. And, and, and on that, I mean, we are looking at, I mean, I know he's focusing on the, on the what could happen with the uh, Iran waivers uh, uh, and the impact that could have on Gazatom Prom and Rosatom. Uh, the fact that you have the uh, Russia suspension agreement uh, that expired in December 2020, just after the election. Uh, he's also looking at uh, disruption that could happen with the uh, resolution in the U.S. probe. So, I mean, overall, we think that um, on a normalized basis, the market should go back, the price should go back to the, the marginal cost of production at $45 a pound, but uh, that the market is also uh, um, uh, ripe for any disruption uh, on the geo geopolitical side or uh, on the production side. What kind of conditions in the market would you need to see to to really start to exit the sector? If uh, we see that um, our assumptions in terms of um, supply and consumption uh, are, are challenged, we could exit the sector and say, "Look, we uh, we got it wrong. We have to uh, to change our mind." If mind, if we see that the, um, maybe the secondary market is not what we expect it to be, if we see that inventory don't don't move, but frankly. Um, if you exclude a, a major event like Fukushima, for example, where you had a, Japan had to switch off uh, 50 or uh, 45 reactors in, in one shot, where you have a ma major impact on, on the market, it's hard to see uh, the situation, the fundamental situation changing over the next uh, year or two, because uh, the producer have announced production cuts. Uh, Martha uh, Kamiko just said, like in the call in November, that uh, uh, they, 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 they will keep uh, back of the mine and okay maintenance for long, as long as it takes. And they don't, they, they don't want to restart if you don't get a contracting price of 45 bucks. Uh, you have uh, Kazatom Prom that, that uh, uh, said again that they, uh, they are going to produce 20% below their nameplate capacity. So uh, overall, it's hard to see production really moving 
above 54,000 uh, tonnes a year. On that side, we, we are covered. So, of course, if we see Cameco starting, um, Caseton Prime starting to produce much more and uh, reaching nameplate name capacity and uh, the primary supply going from 50, 50, 50 to 54,000 a ton to uh, back to 60, then we'll have a problem. But it's really, I really don't think we're going to see that this, uh, in the next uh, year or two. I certainly agree. I think we've got some time before those types of events will, will come to us. Just one, one thing, when I speak with Alex, uh, we think that the, um, really the, uh, the key factor, the key element that is unknown and uh, that could um, postpone the recovery of the market by, by, by two years or three years is really the level of inventory. The level of inventory is very hard to, uh, is very hard to estimate. You, you can estimate what's, what's available for, for, for sale in, a, in, a, in the spot market like the WNA report did, but you have also other inventory that could come to the market from Russia, uh, some some underfeedings, so it's very hard to um, to see what level uh, are we gonna at what level are we going to stabilize and at, at what at what point utilities are going to start to recontract. We think that time is soon. Uh, if and if our assumptions are correct, we think uh, by end of next year we should see a big wave of uh, of uh, long term contracts on the utility side. I agree. I think there'll be uh, quite a bit of action coming up with the utilities. Uh, maybe not so much in 2020, but certainly 2021 uh, onward there, I think we'll have some pretty good action that'll start up. And, you know, I would really be surprised if, if folks like China and Russia are looking to sell into the market their inventory. I, you know, that would be very surprising to me. Uh, not too much of a concern, but I would just be very surprised that they would do that at this point and at this price. I don't, I don't see how it benefits them to do so. So I think that's also a positive thing. Well, Sylvain, how can folks reach out to you and the company for more information about the fund? Well, uh, they can reach me by, uh, by email. They can go on the website. Uh, we have a link there where they can uh, contact us um, uh, and I'll be happy to uh, answer any question they might have. Well, Mr. Bout, we really appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on your show.